On this episode, part two of our story of Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt. Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're keeping well and fresh from the NEC Classic Motor Show 2023. Of course, I'm lying when I say fresh. It is one of the most tiring events. And uh, if I sound a little bit hoarse, that's why, because uh, we spend the whole weekend, well, five days, in fact, building the stand, putting on the show, talking to everyone that comes through the stand, over 80,000 people attending over three days this year, and then, of course, packing it all away again and going home. So it's quite a big undertaking, but the Jaguar Enthusiast Club did a fantastic display, wonderful vehicles from our membership, celebrating each of the model anniversaries that we've marked this year on the stand as well, and great to see so many listeners of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast, so many readers of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine, and so many members of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club coming along to say hello to us. And thanks for all the kind comments. A lot of you enjoying last episode of the podcast, where, of course, we were sharing the story of two amazing characters from Jaguar's past, Duncan Hamilton and the Major Tony Rolt. And we continue with part two of that conversation with Dom, with Caroline, with Stuart in this episode. And in the next 45 minutes, you'll hear why Duncan Hamilton carried a Satsuma in every race car that he drove after 1953, what happened in 1953, and the effects of 1955 on the family. That, of course, the tragic year of the big accident at Le Mans. And also some more memories from the families of both Tony Rolt and Duncan Hamilton. Part two is next. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Let's talk about 1953. Phenomenal year for Jaguar. Phenomenal year as we look back on it 70 years ago exactly from the recording of this. Um, it was Sterling Moss in the lead when the race began, but it was Tony that set the lap record straight away. 96.48 mile an hour, by the way, which is incredible enough. That was at the start of the race. By the time the race had um, got into its second third, they were lapping at over 105 miles per hour. Yeah. Average round Le Mans in the yeah. 1950s. Crazy. It's just incredible, yeah. Stuart, isn't it? Yeah. You think what they were doing at Honda Mulsanne to, to do that because but down at Mulsanne, you're down to first gear, so it's, it's, it's phenomenal, yeah, very brave. Yeah. To, to put it in perspective, um, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were very quick cars out there doing the same sort of thing, so that era of motor racing was ridiculously quick and ridiculously dangerous. I mean, Lofty is quoted as having said, uh, he says on his interviews, that they put a huge amount of effort into getting the cars absolutely right. And sure enough, it, it worked. They, you know, they, they beat Ferrari, they beat Aston Martin. They, they, they did the job. They got those kind of lap times because of some incredible discipline. I think Lofty England probably takes some of the credit from that in that they were really disciplined in timing consistent lap times yep. throughout the day and the night, and the night. weren't they? Yep. Yep. And they, they made a point about, certainly your father spoke about it a lot after that race, the consistency that they were striving to get through the night yep. where other teams started to yep. back off. Yeah. Uh, well, they both agreed, and Duncan, I know, was very strong on this, that keeping, keeping it quick through the night, keeping it steady, was where other people started to back off and slow it, people get tired. And just keep, keeping that pressure up through the night was really, really important. Mm -hmm. And people have learned from that since, of course, you know, and, and, and the tactics have, have become, that's become normal. But in those days, to just keep the pressure going through the night, and not just the night, but the fog, mist, yeah, all the muck, yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's why the, some of the photographs are just fantastic because you get that sort of, you're, you're driving into a setting sun, then you've got the sun coming up, then you've got the mist, and it's um, all of these, these speeds. They were absolutely fearless in those days. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and had to be, because it, and against stiff competition, you know, it works Ferrari team. Um, Aston's. Aston Martin. They were young uh, and dynamic, young men. Yeah. Yeah, all, all, and all of the same, I suppose, making. Yeah. 
all very, very brave. There was a dramatic moment, wasn't there, during the race that um, you actually still have the evidence of, mm -hmm. which I think is absolutely amazing, and it sort of makes the hair stand on the back of my neck when I see yeah. it. Um, and that is the bird strike. Yes. Tell us about the bird strike, Don. Do you know well, that? I think I, you know. Well, I don't know. Obviously, I mean, I just know that a bird flew into him and broke his nose because it went on the windscreen and. Because at the end of the race, you see Dad with a sort of blood on feathers <laughs> on his nose in the photograph. I can't, don't even see the feathers so clearly, but yes. It, it certainly does. And you can imagine that, that, that speed in, in the night. I think it was, I'd have to check. I, I can't remember what, what time, but I, I mean. I thought it was well, a little night. To, but it was very difficult for, I suppose. He, he never, he, my father always said, well, sorry to interrupt you. No, no. When driving, you know, get on. Well, you know, if there's a dog, there's a whatever. The dogs? No, uh, when I was a young oh. girl learning to drive, mm. he always said, just go straight on, just go straight on. They'll avoid you. And so, I mean, he's not going to steer <laughs> away from a bird <laughs> coming no. towards him. You know, he just. I'm not, not sure what, at what hour in the race it was, but let's say for argument's sake, they probably would have had to contend 12 hours with it. It was, I always knew it was Well, I look back at the pictures and, and it, the screen is broken quite early in the race. So ah. they do the whole race with half a, well, with no windscreen. Exactly. And no full-face yeah, helmet. Yeah. Most yeah. of the shots have, have the broken windscreen. And you've got all that wind flies just, yeah. I mean, imagine driving along, yeah. putting your head out Mind of you, a sunroof. My father was a bit taller than Duncan and his head was always poking out of the top. The windscreen really didn't do much for him anyway. It's anyway. We, we're saying windscreen, we should qualify that as an aero screen. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh. Don't have visions of this yeah. a big windscreen covering people. These are little half moon shaped yeah. pieces of glass. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't very big anyway. So for my dad, it didn't make much difference having that in front of you or not. And Duncan was no. a bit sort of smaller in the car. Yeah. But what's fun is that's the original flies, musk, you know, whatever you've hit in France when you're going down the road. Um, we haven't watched it. And that is as it was 70 years ago, well, last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> it's Amazing. quite remarkable. Just a modern bit of cellar tape holding it all together. I'm afraid, yes. <laughs> it's a wonderful artifact to have kept. Um, mm -hmm. Was it unbolted from the car and squirreled away? I don't know um, how, oh, because if I'm not careful, someone in this building is going to tell me it belongs to Jaguar. <laughs> All the great shots of that race have the broken windscreen in it. Mm. There's one of my dad sort of keep, trying to keep his head down under it, but he did that anyway. Yeah. Yes, it, because he was so much taller, that wouldn't have protected him at all. Not much. Yeah. No. No, that's right. And you know, it's kind of lucky in a way that it obviously ricocheted yeah. off that piece of glass. Otherwise, it could have been much worse impact. The fact that yeah. it's glass as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thick glass. Yeah, because they're not wearing full-face helmets here, are yeah. they? Yeah. Their the goggles and open face. Goggles. Yeah. Yeah. They did stop short of wearing a tie, I think, in '53, which some of the Jaguar racers had worn. Um, Mike Hawthorne used to race in a bow tie. Oh, yes. He did. Yeah. Yes. So there we are. 1953, phenomenal race at Le Mans. Difficult weather conditions dramatic moments as we've covered um, an interesting story that we mustn't ever let overshadow their incredible achievements that year um, and also of course the real outing for disc brakes in a Jaguar mm. as well which we still see today on every single car yeah. you know it's the, the, the success of that still resonates through yeah. the motor industry which is which is important. And, a, and an engine that went on and on yeah, yeah. you think about it yeah. yeah, yeah, right the way through into the, well, nearly 90s. Yeah. Um, and, and beating, for the, I mean, Ascari, I think, was Formula 1 champion twice, 52 and 53, mm. in a works for effort, and beating them. Yeah. First car to average over 100 miles an hour, first car to win Le Mans disc In Coronation, yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, it is a remarkable thing, achievement for, yeah. for Britain uh, and, at the time. And we, uh, we climbed Everest. I'm yeah. kind of Everest. 53, big year. Yeah. 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 There's something I wanted to add about this whole professionalism bit, and that is that um, they, Jaguar were determined this year to do it properly, and they tested and tested. So just here at Gaydon, where we are, yeah. is an old RAF base, and it was turned into a test track. 
uh, by in those days um, Girling, and so oh, yeah, it was okay. the Girling test. But, and so hours and hours and hours up and down here uh, at, at Gaydon, and then also at Myra over you know, 40 miles away, where they would test. So um, the drivers were brought in to do huge miles of test work, just to get sure um, in in the most. This was going to be nothing left a chance. So the, the testing, the disc brakes, the engine, they lightened the car considerably, and, um, and it paid off. Mm. In a coronation year, as you yeah. say. So yeah. it was mm. another opportunity for those two drivers mm. to have played their part for their country. Totally. Which yeah. I suspect meant a lot to both of them. Huge, yeah. huge achievement. What are your personal memories, especially you, Caroline, of that moment? Do you remember it at all? Do you of, of the, the winning. Yeah, that there was a big um, victory in the family. Well, I was very young. <laughs> um, I, re I mean, I just remember a huge joy, you know, and um, I grew up very proud of my father because I was aware of what he had done, you know, as a little schoolgirl and things like that. And I was in awe of him, actually. But yes, there was huge celebrations. I mean, my brother was, he's 18, he was 18 months older than me. Um, I was, I know, as I say, just a, a month younger than Stuart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we weren't at school or anything, but I was aware of it from the age of about um, nine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Still, yeah. Do, you, do you remember, do you remember going to Coventry afterwards? Well, memory is a funny thing, isn't it? Because, mm. because there's a photograph of the Lord Mayor of Coventry awarding this thing to Dad, and I'm there in the photograph with my elder sister, little person, age four. Mm. Uh, I sort of think, oh yes, I remember that, but I'm not sure I do, because I think that's how memory yeah. works. Um, and in my mind, do I remember setting off to Coventry? To, the answer is, at four years old, I don't think you, no. your memory's not no. on, on for that, honestly. So. Anyway, there's a nice picture of us all at Coventry with Dad getting this, whatever he got from the Lord Mayor of Coventry. And I like to think, oh, I remember that. But actually, I, what I remember is the photograph. It got interesting again when he started, the, all the Ferguson four-wheel drive stuff happened, and the Ferguson P99 race car, and that one, at, I was at school when it won at Oldham Park in 1961 with Sterling driving it. I was very, I have great memories of that. You know, that's my dad's car sort of thing. But the early days of being Tony Rolt's son as a five, six-year-old, um, not really, mm. not really. It, it wasn't a big, wasn't a big deal. By the time you got old enough to really appreciate it, he kind of had a, a normal job in in, in development. I exactly. Guess, right yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Carol, what about you? you um, well, no, I I do have a lot of memories of a lot of the drivers right. always there. I mean, at my christening when I was two. Um, it was later. I was christened later because I couldn't get the drivers together. And we saw a photograph earlier of various drivers there. And um, I vividly remember people like Ivor Buerb mm. coming and Mike Cawthorn. And um, they used to bring me, I remember Ivor Buerb brought me a little pink pig. <laughs> 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 and I was so thrilled. You know, it's extraordinary. Yes, so it was always a lot of action with people coming drivers and things so but I never talked about it at school or anything like that but I was reminding Stuart and, and um, Dom about the story when I was I must have been about 10 and my father was um, bribed I suppose he I don't know whether it was a letter or phone call to the to demand a lot of money from him or else they were going to kidnap me and um, I must have been about 10 and um, I was just at a little local school so I was very on vision having to go for the bus to walk to school and I remember they said don't tell the police he said whatever and of course my father did tell the police and it was going to be at Reading Station um, this is where my father had to deliver the money and um, the police did an amazing job and Reading Station was emptied of all people working there and so the police were there under in plain clothes sweeping the floor and being sort of station masters and um, 
my father arrived with a wad of cash and he had to put it in the gentleman's loo on the top of the cistern or whatever and, and then he disappeared back and of course the guy came and he was arrested. Wow. I know. <laughs> it was an extraordinary story and I'm so glad my father told the police. Um, and I remember being told that story and it's the dark side, isn't it, of being, you know, the offspring of a racing driver or any famous sports Well, I I'm sure any film star yeah. person must Incredible. maybe have this happening, but I remember it very well, very, very well. Quite frightening for a young girl, I imagine, to, to know that was happening. Do you know, I thought it was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember being so proud of Dad. You know. That's the genetics coming through, isn't it? That's for sure. <laughs> Not scared of anything. No, I, I thought it was exciting. <laughs> Incredible story. Let's go back to racing just for a minute and go to 1954. Um, if 1953 was difficult, 1954 was almost impossible as a race, wasn't it, at Le Mans? It was biblical rain. It was um, really tough conditions for all. Um, it was the first year, really, of Jaguar proving the D-type at Le Mans. There was this moment, and perhaps Stuart, you know some of the details of it, where your father came in with goggles full of water. Yeah. yeah. Struggling to see. Yeah. Wanted desperately to have these goggles changed or, or the team to do something. And they sent him straight back out again, didn't they? Yeah. Because, uh, of course, no radios, no communication, just couldn't see. Comes in, and he, what he wants is the visor. Uh, or something, change the goggles anyway. But they're not ready, so Artie goes again, does another lap, by which time they then decide to get Duncan ready with the right kit on. And so he, when, the, when he next appears, he comes in and he gets out, Duncan gets in with all the kit on and then goes like hell to try to, to win the race. Which, and then of course, meanwhile, Ferrari is sitting in the pits, uh, not starting, so it's incredibly tense. and. Unfortunately, the weather then improved, and equally unfortunately, the Ferrari then restarted. And once it was back to dry, um, the Ferrari was, was quicker and, and went on to win. But there was, it was very close, and by the end it was one minute something yes, different. Yeah, yeah. But there was a moment then when it was looking really good, because the Ferrari, um, and, and then Sir William Lyons being who he was, could have protested that the, there were too many mechanics working on the Ferrari, which wouldn't start, sitting stationary in the pits and the Jaguars going around catching. And the, um, they, in theory, put too many mechanics on it and they could have protested. And apparently Sir William Lyons said, we're not gonna win, we're not gonna win by a protest. So eventually, unfortunately, the Ferrari fired up and off um, Ascari went and, and got going again. But it was a fantastic race, really close. And I have a lovely um, photograph um, taken from a French magazine, you may have the same one, uh, of a very disconsolate uh, yes, yes, Duncan yes. and Dad mm. um, talking about the two French, um, the, two, the, the two British winners from last year um, who had done a magnificent job. It's, it's, a, it's really nice to see the French writing it in that way, actually. They were okay after that that incident where, where Duncan gets in with all the right gear that oh, yeah, Tony yeah. had been so desperate to have. Yeah, yeah, no, he, that was okay, yeah. I think, I think Dad was pissed off that, you know, I'm, I'm, where's my kit? But actually it made sense to stick Duncan in. Let's talk a little bit about 1955. It's pretty clear that the Jaguar team throughout the team were, were deeply affected by what happened there. Um, we know the story of 1955, of course, Pierre Levesque's car crashing into the crowd, um, over 80 spectators um, being killed. And I guess from a family point of view, one of the difficult things about that race was that that accident happened in front of the pit lane and so many of the family would have seen it happen. Um, was it something that you were aware of, especially, you know, the wives sat in, in the pit lane at the time, as you've already described, was there a memory of that that, that you've ever heard and, and yes. spoken about? Yeah. My mother said very little about it. I think she was with Lois at the time. They saw it and, you know, absolutely devastating 
and I think Mum would always recall the fact that um, they never stopped the race, mm. um, which sends yeah. chills down me to think mm. about it. They never stopped the race. And when I asked why, you know, and she said it's because they wouldn't have been able to get the ambulances through because everybody would have been terrified. And so that is an awful thought that the race continued with this absolute devastation of families and lives. And, and they saw people being decapitated. I mean, it just beyond, you know, there were parts winging across people in seconds. And Everything on a narrow piece of track in comparison to today. I mean, it was just the other not much wider than no. this barrier. little room. Yeah. There's no barrier, nothing. Yeah. And they saw, you know, it, but so quick, everything happened, you know, parts of a car just yeah. cutting through people's bodies. And I mean, everything everywhere. You can just imagine it, a complete massacre. Yeah, I just very much remember about the ambulances, you know, not being able to come through. Um, yeah, my mum used to certainly tell, I think I've said it already, that um, I think Mike Hawthorne, uh, did he know at the time he, he might have been responsible for it? There's lots of, there have been so many uh, ways of telling the story, but um, I think it's pretty well accepted that his movement, late late call coming into the pits, caused Macklin to veer off and then the Mercedes shot off the back. And um, so, yeah, my mum absolutely talked about him coming in, changing drivers to Buib, your friend Ivor Buib. <laughs> and um, there's Mike, an absolute wreck in, in, the, in mm. the pits with this thing having happened. One thing I would say is, we now know how many people were killed. In, in those days, you wouldn't know. You know there's devastation, like a bomb going off the other side. Yeah. Um, but they probably wouldn't have known just h how appalling it was. But it was, you know, when you see the video footage of it now, it's, it's, it's evidently an absolute c a carnage. Um, and then, of course, there was the big decision to go on racing. Well, A, they didn't stop the race, and B, Jaguar decided to go on racing, whereas the Mercedes withdrew their cars. Um, out yeah. of respect, and that was a big, you know, for the Jaguar archives, it's mm. a big call that. Um, I guess Sir William Lyons must have been asked whether he wanted to go on. There are shots of them looking, you know, looking happy at the end of the race, which I always find a bit difficult because I think mm. um, these days, mm. as Caroline says, you'd, A, you'd stop the race, but B, you would stop racing yeah. um, out Absolutely. of respect. But um, on they went, and so there it is, Jaguar won Le Mans in a D-type for the second time in 1955, Hawthorne and Buib, um, and our, mm. uh, the, the, the Royal Hamlet car was, went out with an engine problem, I think, somewhere mm. early on. Yeah, well, the, the gear box. They were doing very well, yeah. they were right up there. Okay. So, so it could have been another one, um, they were, they were, they, but they had problems that year. Um, but I think it's an uncomfortable piece of history for, mm. for for Jaguar, actually. It's like all things in history, you have to be careful not to look at it through modern eyes. Correct. Mm. You know, knowing that today we have smartphones, text messages, social media, and that ability to get information around, they just wouldn't have had a clue. No. Caroline's point about the ambulances getting out, I mean, I, I do understand the idea that if you stopped the race and everybody started to go home, you would really struggle to get any ambulances mm. to, to move well, anywhere through the crowds. It would have caused so I I mean, such panic. Yeah. Because, of course, any crash causes panic, but... 200,000 people trying to leave a circuit, I mean, it's going to be yeah. blocked. I just remember my mother telling me that they, you know, didn't stop the race mm. because it was desperate to get the ambulances through without ringing their bells. But anyway, there was a very strong community... Very of, strong. ...of British drivers doing sports car racing and travelling around the world doing it, yeah, yeah. Well, right. they all supported each other. Yeah. I pose that question because, of course, that Jaguar community was then dealt a further blow that year because Sir William Lyons' son was killed. Yep. And I'm just trying to understand, on top of everything else that happened at the race, you know, if that's not yeah. bad enough, yeah. then you've got this to contend with as well. Before they've even got there. Wow. His only son. 
for all of the criticism, rightly or wrongly, that Jaguar and perhaps even Sir William Lyons get for continuing to race, mm. what's not taken into account in that criticism is the personal tragedy he was having yeah, to deal with. Absolutely terrible. Already. But they said to get, I mean, I, just to speak on his behalf, he said to continue the race for the safety of, you know, the civilians and the other drivers. I mean... No, but, but hang on, Caroline. This is talking about continuing to have your cars continue to race. You could withdraw your cars in respect of the accident and everybody else carries on racing. I'm not yes. talking about stopping the race. Okay. Different. So, you know, the, the, the organisers could have stopped the race and that would have led to the, the ambulances not getting through. But Jaguar could have said, our car's been involved in a disaster and do what Mercedes did, which, yeah. which was to withdraw their cars. So, well, would it have been, uh, I suppose, an, an admittance of fault on Mike Hawthorne's part if they had done so? There you go. By continuing to race. There you go. Slightly. Yeah. Good point, Don. Absolving of blame. Yeah. 1955 for the major um, is this last Le Mans, Stuart, yep. isn't it? Um, from that moment, he he retired. Yeah. Do you think the tragedy had a part to play in that? No, I look back um, at his quotes on that, and um, it absolutely he says not. Absolutely, he he retired, as I said earlier in this chat that he retired for um, business reasons and he had an employer, Harry Ferguson, who didn't. I mean, that might have affected Harry Ferguson's thinking, the disaster. Um, but um, no, he said, I've done enough. I want to concentrate on work and, um, and family. And the Ferguson Empire by now huge in Coventry. They've got the massive Banner Lane factory is at full pelt, isn't it? Yeah. Building the, the the tractors. There must have been a lot of money and incentive. Yeah, but that, no, but he, yeah, but to be clear, to be clear for the record on that, the Ferguson Empire provided the money for the concept of the Ferguson car. And so the Ferguson car was this dream of Harry Ferguson's and my father's uh, and Fred Dixon, bless him. Um, and that was what was driving my dad forward. Yeah. That that was it. Uh, with a brand new facility built just up the road here in, uh, in Coventry, which was put there by Harry Ferguson with his money to, to do this thing. So this was a huge thing they were trying to do, build a world-beating new car, yeah. a new make-of car called a Ferguson. Which, which, is, which it was, and it was yep. stuck, wasn't it? Well, no, it, 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 it never got built, but they, do, they built four prototypes. 1960, you've got a four-wheel drive um, race car out. It, I mean, it's just phenomenal step forward. Mm. Um, and, of course, the most famous brand for putting sports four-wheel drive into action was Audi with the Quattro system. But who did they chat to, Stuart, about their Quattro system when they were trying to develop it? There was a moment when, I mean, my dad and, and what... And by then I joined him, what we were developing was, was four-wheel drive systems for the world to adopt. And sure enough, we had customers, we had Ford, we had Lancia, we had people. Um, and then we got very much involved in rallying and we had a, developed a thing called a viscous coupling. doesn't matter what a viscous coupling is, but it's a clever device that goes into the four-wheel drive system, patented by my dad. And, and uh, Audi came along with the Quattro and hadn't consulted us at all, just did it. Hugely successful, and they went rallying and won the World Rally Championship. And then Peugeot, uh, thanks to a chap just up the road here in Coventry, came along and said, we're gonna do our own rally car called the 205 T16B. Yeah. And um, we want the best four-wheel drive system. We said, well, we've got that. And we gave them, we sold them the idea of the viscous coupling, which they put in, and then they went off and won the World Rally Championship. So one Christmas, a year later, I got a call from a guy called Dieter Bascher, who was running Audi Sport and the Quattro, who were hugely influential in everything to do with rallying. And he was a lovely guy. He said, Harold, uh, I have to speak to you. Um, it seems we have to come to you for, for your technology. <laughs> and I said, that's fine, let's go. And, and they became our biggest customer. And they never told the world they were using our system. And then, when Audi went, staying back to Le Mans, when Audi went back to Le Mans, they used the a gearbox, transmission a gearbox for the car, which was developed by our company, for them. Great. So there you go. Isn't it? So it's I like great. that. And my dad was quite chuffed about that. I the, can even The idea that Audi go to Le Mans and use our gearbox from his company 
yeah. was quite a moment. There was a wonderful moment when a Jaguar XJ220 won its class at Le Mans. Mm. Oh, yes. And we were there, I was there for this moment with our gearbox in it, but they, it got disqualified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's David Coulthard, I Exactly. Yeah. It was up for auction um, at the weekend, apparently. Nice. It didn't receive, didn't achieve its um, asking price. So, yeah, so there is a strong connection back to Jaguar. Yeah. There's a brilliant quote from Duncan Hamilton that uh, I think sum, sums up his personality quite nicely. And it was, um, I think he's now racing in a D-type as a privateer, that he, and he, he owns this D-type, he's entering yeah. it himself into races towards the end of the 50s, the end of his career. It's at Snetterton, he's winning the race, the tyre goes bang, and he spins off, but he spins off across the start-finish line, and he says, oh, yeah. it was the only, and this is from, from the book actually, the only race he remembers winning whilst pointing in the wrong direction. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> he had a great sense of humour, Dad. <laughs> it's nice that he can laugh at himself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wind back to earlier in the year, there was the incident at Nürburgring where he didn't get to drive the car because his co-driver crashed it in qualifying or practice, then broken the gearbox during the race. And so Duncan Hamilton never got a shot at, at the race. Who was the... Uh, oh, I was going to ask. Who was the co-driver? Oh, oh, was it? Oh, yeah. That would explain Reeves. <laughs> exactly. That's where I'm going with it. Because okay. fast forward then to later in that year, Reeves' 12-hour race, um, he is then sat behind Paul Frere. Lofty England says, right, we're going to finish in formation. He fancies a shot at the lap record, which he duly takes, overtakes Paul Frere and takes the win. Yeah. And then is sat. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, tell us the story. Don't let me tell oh, it. Oh, I've only read I mean, <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is written. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, asked to, uh, or told, to vacate his seat, having ignored team orders and went and drove for Ferrari. But, of course, at the end of that, there was no work to your team to go back to. So mm. being a privateer and, and being, I suppose, loyal to the brand, God, he knew well. And, I mean, Le Mans 56 and the Ferrari did not go well. His teammate, uh, Alfonso mm. de Portago, I think, threw it off on the first corner. Um, and then reverted to, to Jaguar. But, um, I think the relationship wasn't soured. And there was a, an agreed agreement to disagree. On various matters. <laughs> <laughs> they remain friends then. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. But I don't, I think, in the situation, Papa was probably quite independent of thought, <laughs> for want of a better word. There's a few sort of light-hearted stories that um, I'd love to get on to to, to, to round things up. Um, the first one is, and these are stories that um, we can either tell the story of or say that definitely didn't happen, it's all untrue, but we can make, we can put it all to bed now, okay? Okay. I'm going to ask about, um, despite all of his races with Jaguar, um, in his book he very clearly makes out that the Talbot Largo Grand Prix car was the best race car, or his favourite race car that he, he raced, and it was stored in a, in a coal hole, as he described it, in Dieppe. That's right. And he decides to come and sell this car, but he can't quite remember where he left it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had to dig it out. Yes. And they found it. It's a true story, then. But I just remember reading that. I don't know whether I actually ever heard it. It weren't true. <laughs> it's a wonderful story that you just lose your favourite race car in France somewhere in a hole. Yes, you know? I know. <laughs> Things like that did happen to that was his, that was his. That was his formula. His, that was his single-seater. Yeah. He is, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he lost track of it, did he? Just yeah, he, he put it somewhere in Dieppe, and oh, he I couldn't see. remember where. Okay. Yeah. It was in a... Some, the safekeeping. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was going to be in a warehouse or something, but it seemed to be a sort of coal slump <laughs> or something. Good idea. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was looking for property. They did have yeah. to dig it out. Yeah. <laughs> that, um... That ghostwriter really earned his money. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Yes, he did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, you can't imagine the current crop of Formula One drivers losing one of their cars in a coal hole in, in <laughs> France, no. really. Um, <laughs> uh, 1953, a Porto, Portugal. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, and Duncan Hamilton caused the whole city to um, have a power cut. That's true. 
a huge accident in a sea side, head on, there's a telegraph pole, and came to with a Portuguese surgeon smoking a cigar, and surrounded by candles. Because <laughs> apparently all the power had been knocked out now. The only way to check would be going to the Portuguese electricity board. <laughs> <laughs> There is, I, I remember hearing that story, you know, many, many, many times, how it's skidded and whatever. And um, as I said to you earlier, yeah. there were a few nuns in the story, which rather surprised me. <laughs> Apparently dragged him out of a burning car. Well, the nuns did? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, they, they were marshals on the day. I think they were marshals. <laughs> It gets even more fantastic. No, yeah. He arrived. He arrived in, in the hospital in a really bad way. You know, broken ribs, broken jaw. Yeah, very, very bad. Huh? Very, very bad. And he asked for water. He said, "Water, water." And of course, they didn't understand what he said. And they sent for a little boy who was learning English. And he arrived with a glass of port. <laughs> <laughs> Which my father gratefully had. <laughs> That'll do. And my father said that the guy had a, a large cigar and the ash was sort of dropping on that, you know. I mean, it was pretty ferocious thought. But, um, yeah, there that was the are. picture I was told. There we are. So, uh, but they couldn't... Uh, Can I put something in there, uh, Wayne? Is that um, talking about marshals and who might be nuns or might be <laughs> uh, One of the things that was, I have very happy memories of uh, my dad and the families was um, they were both very proud members of the BRDC at Silverstone. Yes, very much so. And they were, um, uh, they seemed to have cornered the market in marshalling <laughs> Beckett's Corner for all the yeah. Formula One races, the, the many, many foot years of Formula One races. And so this team of um, friends would turn up with large estate cars full of booze and the marshals would then set to to a very very good picnic which i remember vividly um whilst this racing went on and um occasionally something would happen and they had to be oh no we've got to go and do something now and, 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 but the idea of duncan and my dad sort of leaping into action to sort out some had something that happened on the circuit luckily there were um professional marshals in the right kit <laughs> who would do things with fire extinguishers and, and things but because they weren't really in a state to do much just walk uh, around with a broom about that yeah exactly walk around, sort, sort it out but the very happy days at, at Silverstone the very happy days yeah. so they continued to long after motorsport finished they'd retire they continued to remain friends oh, and, oh, yeah. and go to motorsport together oh, yes, and yes. Yeah. that was a family yeah. thing as well there was, there was a thing called the Ancien Pilot which was yeah. you, you only qualified for if you'd driven in a Grand Prix and so they both did and they used to go to those and have very happy times with with kindred spirits yeah yeah mm. and um, uh, the families remain very close mm. very close yeah we were as very very close and we went on holidays forevermore yeah that, well, that really comes across it's, it's yeah it's nice um, so playing continuing to play the game of myth or, or not myth um, brilliant story here Duncan Hamilton the only guy ever stopped for speeding on his way yeah. to present a TV show on road safety. That's right. That's yes, true. true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's that great. Is true. Yeah. Great and ironic all yeah. at the same time. Terribly, terribly funny. Terribly funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, absolutely true. Tell us the story then. Presumably, this is um, this is after he's finished racing, yeah, is it? Yes, he's retired. Yeah, very much so. Yes. Well, I, I mean, it's just as you said, you know, he was probably late, you know, getting some of so put the foot down. He always used to say, put the foot down, girl, you know. <laughs> and um, so he was stopped. And he said, well, hang on a minute, you know, I'm the great who I am, and I'm going to talk about safety driving. I don't know, he probably took a fine gratefully and got there eventually. <laughs> There's some intriguing stories as well around, and I have to say again, I think I mentioned it before we started recording, that um, in sort of researching some of the stories I wanted to cover, there were some really difficult bits because it's difficult to find out what's true and what's not, what's romanticised or what's fact. 
Um, and there's a couple of stories that don't quite make sense, in the sense that um, one of the really hilarious stories is the moment where Duncan Hamilton is overtaken by his own Bugatti mm. without a driver, mm. and he realises as it's alongside him that it's his own car that he's towing to, I think, Brooklands, but the story comes across that he's towing it with his, with his MGR type. That surely can't be true. <laughs> well, I think it was, which is very odd. Because, I, I mean, and he waved it, he saw this car, Bugatti, coming along, and he waved it along, and suddenly thought, it's got no driver. <laughs> What's going on? And then, it's most extraordinary that he suddenly realised, well, actually, that's the car I'm supposed to be towing. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense, but... A lot of things my father did doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to picture a single-seater MG going down the road, towing a 35B Bugatti. It's, mm. <laughs> well, it's days, amazing. You can go up to all sorts. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only R-type MG with a tow bar. It must have been. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it, I think what we're getting from here is a tremendous sense of humour, quite mischievous as well, because mm. of some of these stories and... Uh, I think uh, he believed his stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> and were they stories that in the, the later years, long after his retirement, he would tell the family or...? Oh, yes. Yeah. Is it as a... He always oh. used to say, nothing on the clock but the maker's name. <laughs> Talking about the speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Always regale. Many, many stories, yes. Yeah. In a low, yeah. And we knew way. that a lot of them weren't true, and that's what made them, that's what made us laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was, you know, spun along. Huge exaggeration. I think, I know my father really believed in his stories. <laughs> 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 he was right there with it all happening. <laughs> Regardless whether it was true or not. <laughs> well, as you look back then, here in 2023, we're looking back on um, the lives of two incredible characters, both from Jaguar's history and from, from motorsport as well. What are your fondest memories of Duncan Hamilton, Caroline? Um, goodness me. Um, well, I was incredibly proud of his achievements, you know. And he was a very very witty man, not witty, he was terribly funny. Um, he told wonderful stories <laughs> and he loved his family very much. And I think we sort of, as a family, grounded him where he could go off and do his racing and, and he loved all our animals. We had many animals growing up, guinea pigs and spaniels and puppies and he really relished all that. In, in equal measure for my grandmother, for your mother. Because without Angela, Papa wouldn't have been who he was. No, mm. absolutely. And she was remarkable. Mm. Absolutely wonderful. She was a great so, lady. Yeah. Oh, she was wonderful. And absolutely should be spoken of in the same breath in terms of achievement. Hugely. Yeah. I mean, she was patient and loyal. And yeah. I mean, I remember after Le Mans, when Dad found out he was um, wearing a little neckerchief red next year. He was terribly superstitious, my father. We, we weren't allowed to cross on the stairs, weren't allowed to wear green, couldn't cross our knives. So superstitious. Mm. Um, anyway, this scarf, he insisted he wore it on every single race. And um, my mother had to go back once because he was at a race and he, my mother had left it in the hotel and he was, she was sent back to go and get it. And she was caught for speeding and taken away in a black Mariah. <laughs> this was in France. She was taken away in a black Mariah. My father was like ticking on the clock. I want my scarf. Not though his wife was in prison. <laughs> wow. She, I mean, she managed to get it there through somebody else, I think, somewhere. It's more important to get his scarf. <laughs> no, my mother was so loyal and patient and kind. And um, yeah, she was a great sort of backup to him. Yeah. Huge supporter. And, um, you know, kept albums of all his yeah. things that he'd done and paper clippings. Integral. I'm sure the same with Stuart with your mother. 
Oh yeah, more well, album giving, yes, absolutely immaculate. But yeah. in terms of support and yeah. racing yeah. yeah. everything else. Sure. Work, career. Yeah. Absolutely. And you told us a little bit about how and I find it amazing because it's a bit of a contradiction in the character we've learned about as we've gone through this conversation, but just how superstitious he was. And also, I love the fact that we have glove boxes in racing cars in this story, but um, he, he kept something very special to him in the glove box of his racing cars, didn't he? Yes, I did. I'm sure you know. Yeah. Yeah. They found a, a, sat a satsuma in the glove compartment. It's quite funny to see it, a racing yeah. car with a glove compartment and kept it forevermore. And um, whenever he raced, he had that same satsuma. And so it's now in yeah. existence, it's fossilized. Well, yes, I mean, my father took it everywhere. Um, at the beginning of COVID, and he was a photo of the, the orange, it was probably a satsuma. Mm. It looked like the size of a satsuma. It looked like a walnut, actually. Um, <laughs> and, at the beginning of COVID, my father said, oh, I can't find the orange. And I think it transpires that the teen lady threw it out. No. Yeah. And he never, never saw it. And I said, no, be in a jacket pocket somewhere. And this was two years ago. I and he never, yep, and it has not it disappeared. Yeah, 2020. He was, he was heartbroken about it. I so he took it with him everywhere. I didn't know that. And, uh, yeah, Papa raced with it every race after one of them all. Because it was found in the car in 53, after the race. And, uh, yep, I remember my father saying very wise, I can't find that thing anywhere. And uh, he just reached the conclusion that the clean lady had thrown it out thinking it was a rotten old orange, which I suppose it was. <laughs> but he handed yeah. it to Archie when he, he was Yes, when my, yeah, when my half-brother raced at Le Mans in 2013, he gave it to him to race with then and 2014. So where it is now, who knows? Wow. It served its purpose. <laughs> yes, it did. Yes, I suppose if no one else is racing in the Hamilton family now, then it no. did its peace, didn't it? No, yeah. I don't know. A nice end there in the end, yep. after all. Um, for each of you, how would you, how would you sum, sum them up, Caroline, starting with you? How would you sum up your, your father in, in explaining to someone who'd never met them what they were like as a person? Well, he was, he was a very strong character, a very big character. He certainly knew his presence, you know. Um, and he was very funny, and he was loyal to his friends, and I think he was a great personality. I mean, he died 20, 29 years ago. My daughter was three months old when he died. How would you sum up the major, Stuart? He was very driven by, above all, to succeed in his business life. That's what he really wanted to do. The motor racing was something he enjoyed and he was good at, but um, he was totally committed to what he was trying to do with Harry Ferguson and, and the business. And he was an optimist, actually. Uh, I think he loved the new technology. He was, he was an inventor in his own right. Um, he was great with a great leader of people. So the people who worked for him in our business adored him. Uh, he was much respected. And he, um, he repaid that loyalty uh, to them. Um, and therefore, I think he was, and he was a, quite a thinker. He, he, he had a lot of, um, in his collection of books, a lot of philosophy. He thought about life. I think his time as a prisoner of war, you have time to reflect on life. And he was therefore um, a, a, a man who looked at the world with, with, with great excitement, actually, mm. not daunted um, by it. And, and uh, he was, um, um, yeah, a very sort of creative spirit, and, and that's what drove him on. He's definitely, um, and the records show that he is a pioneer of the British motor industry. Yep. We covered that with um, the four-wheel drive story. Yep. Um, have you found that as your inspiration in your career as you've gone forward as well? Yeah, very much. I loved working with him. Uh, he was great. I mean, he, he was um, 
we had when I first joined, we had a classic father-son uh, um, relationship in that I was the young bull and he was the old bull and uh, <laughs> I had ideas of why aren't we doing that dad he said because we don't do it like that and but we had a lot of fun we used to go testing cars together at places like Myra and uh, he would always insist on doing the driving you know I'm the racing driver you're not <laughs> so and um, but we, we it worked very well and uh, in his later years he he, he he was a good interested grandfather and um, my I think he was uh, overall a, a pretty good, pretty good father. Pretty good dad. We had moments, you know, everyone does. But um, and he was driven. He was a. He really wanted to succeed, and so that sometimes drove him in a way which you say, "Hang on, Dad, we back off a bit." But that's fine. That's how people like that are. I could live with that. Yeah, must be a tremendous sense of pride that you have. For the legacy that he and yourself have left in no, the motor industry. I am very proud of it, very proud of it, absolutely, yeah. Well, that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast. Do keep in touch with us, though, and let us know about your own Jaguar stories via the contact form at jcpodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive new episodes of this podcast automatically for free by subscribing via your favourite podcast provider. We're on them all. Google, Apple, Spotify. Pick which one works for you. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Now button on the top right-hand side of the podcast page at jcpodcast.com. When you join, you'll also get our big, chunky, glossy, lovely 180-page monthly magazine. It's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.